Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 2055-450-NOAH. 2055-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. I have to be honest with you, from time to time, I do doubt myself when it comes to things like data privacy. And the reason that I doubt myself is because it does come with a significant expense in the realm of convenience. And over the years, I have kind of become numb to it because I've been doing it so for so long. I've literally lived my entire adult life paying attention to my own privacy and not relying on the infrastructure of other people. But as I go to various conferences and as I interact with various people and go out for dinner with friends and so on and so forth, meet up with family, whatnot, I can't help but notice how convenient letting other people manage your technology is and how convenient it is to relinquish a little bit of privacy. And that's the creep that occurs inside of my head because I drive down my street and I just, I'm like, man, wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be nice to just grab a, grab a cell phone, grab a tablet, grab a traditional laptop and just live a normal lifestyle. Like stop worrying about the tech and start worrying about the things that are so cool in life to pay attention to and just forget about it and not, not really worry about it. Nobody else seems to. And quite honestly, when you go around your day-to-day life, doesn't really look like anybody's upset. doesn't really look like anybody's being hurt or bothered by the fact that they're constantly being spied on. We know that's happening, but nobody seems to care. And the other part of it, for me anyway, is I don't believe I'm that interesting of a person to begin with, right? All of my political views, all of my thoughts on technology, my religious beliefs, all of those things are available on social media publicly anyway. I don't hide them. I don't care. And so if the NSA or the government wants to know, that's perfectly fine. Of course, I would always have my cold shelf laptop specifically there just in case I ever want to truly compute in privacy. At the end of the day, I'm looking to promote the Ask Noah Show. I'm looking to promote the School of Hard Knocks, and I would like those to become more of a staple in the podcasting world. So if the NSA wants to help me do that by backing my data up, go for it, right? And then this past week, I read Edward Snowden's new book, Permanent Record. And what happened was a complete validation of everything that I have believed about user and data privacy from episode one of this show and everything I have told you. Everything I have suggested to every user that has ever visited the show, called in the show, joined us in the interactive mumble room, asked a question in the chat room, they have gotten a consistent answer from me and from this show. And that consistent answer is own your technology, care about your privacy, because you're paying for it one way or the other. And you won't know the true cost of paying for privacy until it's too late. And as I went through this book, I I, I knew that this had to become part of the show, or at least we're going to have to discuss this on the show, because Edward Snowden does a phenomenal job 
at describing his relationship with the Internet and his relationship with infant technology. That is to say, if you are under the age of 30, you will not have the perspective that Edward Snowden gives. And the reason that you won't have the perspective that Edward Snowden gives is because you don't know what it was like to have technology that was completely under your control, both the good and the bad. The bad part of it was, or let me start with the good. The good part of it was all of the data was under your control. Very few people, if any, was were interested in trying to, you know, we didn't have crypto malware and all of those kinds of things that people on the Internet were nice. They were it was fun because there was a shared there was a shared love of technology. And the only people that existed in that platform were a shared love of technology. Right now you have script kitties and just general idiots that get online and go, well, I want to make some money. Oh, I can download the script and email it to a lot of people and maybe I'll, maybe they'll click on the link and then I'll get a lot of Bitcoin and I can cash that in for money. That sounds like a good way to live my life. You get people like that. I think previously, I think in the 90s, a lot of those people were shunned, those people that tried to do really terrible bad things unless they were doing it for some sort of political reason and the other people that were in the technical community agreed with them. But he does a fantastic job of setting up and describing his relationship with the Internet. So if you're under 30, you won't have this perspective. So listen up. Now, if you are over the age of 30 and you own an iPhone or have a Gmail account or participate in Facebook, Twitter, etc., then you're who he's talking to and you also should listen up. What makes a life? More than what we say, more even than what we do. A life is also what we love and what we believe in. For me... What I love and believe in the most is connection, human connection, and the technologies by which that is achieved. Those technologies include books, of course, but for my generation, connection has largely meant the Internet. Before you recoil, knowing well the toxic madness that infests that hive in our time, understand that for me, when I came to know it, the Internet was a very different thing. It was a friend and a parent. It was a community without border or limit, one voice and millions, a common frontier that had been settled but not exploited by diverse tribes living amicably enough side by side, each member of which was free to choose their own name and history and customs. Everyone wore masks, and yet this culture of anonymity through polyonomy produced more truth than falsehood, because it was creative and cooperative rather than commercial and competitive. Certainly, there was conflict, but it was outweighed by goodwill and good feelings, the true pioneering spirit. You will understand, then, when I say that the Internet of today is unrecognizable. Think about how true that is. Think about how true that is. When you go online, where is the most reputable resource ever? Any form or any place where there's a lot of people, right? The best disinfectant is sunshine. Anytime an issue comes to light, 99.999% of the time, the more eyeballs that are on that issue, the more accurate our perception of that issue becomes, right? And he doesn't necessarily go into this in his book, but I... It made me think of it right away. There is absolute truth, right? We know what absolute we know that there is absolute truth. When something happens, when one person does a given action and does something, there is an absolute truth of what occurred in a given situation. But because human perception, human memory is flawed, oftentimes uh, you'll have two different accounts of the same incident. In fact, always you have two different accounts. There's his side, her side, and then what actually happened, right? That's a common phrase. 
Think about what happens when you take that into the internet. And no longer are you talking about two eyewitness accounts or two people that are bringing points. Now you're talking about thousands or millions of people that are able to share their views and bring a different perspective that you yourself may not have thought about. One of the most useful things that I ever uh, utilize when I do show prep is the internet, is Reddit. Because anytime there is an issue, you can see both sides of it. And what you'll find is oftentimes there is a... a logical side and an illogical side and people that participate on the illogical side oftentimes get dogpiled by those that are participating on the logical side. And that of course has led to all sorts of interesting factions of the internet, people who want to censor other people because they don't like what they have to say. And that of course is frustrating on an entirely different level, but think about how true the fact is that when you go onto the internet, a place where there is no reference, there is no authority, there is no final say, there is no real laws, and think about how well that community functions as opposed to how horrible the community in real life functions by comparison, right? I remember when I was in school and I was told time and time again, you cannot trust Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not a reputable source for information. And look what we talk about today. Today, we say that Wikipedia, on average, has less errors than the encyclopedia. Why? Wisdom of many. When you get a lot of people involved in something, all of a sudden, information comes out. And true information becomes very clear, and false information becomes very clear. The only time we have a problem is when the mainstream media, or when uh, somebody who wants to exert control over the internet decides to try to do that, And spreads falsehoods and they use the Internet to try to do that and they use censorship to keep the truth from coming out. And that can be very, very frustrating. Another thing that Snowden talks about in his book, and I didn't pull the clip from this because, frankly, he takes a long time to set it up and we just don't have that much time. But he talks about the ability to be anonymous. When you back in the 90s, when you chose a screen name, it was just that it was a screen name, your online life and your real life were two entirely separate things. They were completely disconnected from one another. And what happened over time, and we'll get to why in just a moment, what happened over time was companies decided that it was profitable and necessary to tie an online identity to a physical identity, to a real identity, Facebook being one of the first companies to come out and say, if you're going to sign up, you have to sign up with a real name. And I distinctly remember, I have used the username Kernel Linux since the time I was probably eight years old. Uh, I've used it everywhere. That was my online persona. Now, unlike Edward Snowden, I never changed online personas. I've just been Kernel Linux and I will always be Kernel Linux. That's just who I am. But Snowden points out that if you said something stupid online under the pseudonym Kernel Linux, for example, you might the next day decide that you're going to drop that handle and you're going to pick a new one like Colonel Debugger dot Dill. I don't know. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Colonel Debugger Dill. Uh, that is a perfect example of just totally jettisoning one identity and then assuming a new one. And the Internet afforded that capability. And think about what what an advantage that would be. To kids today, teenage kids who do stupid things, post stupid pictures, say stupid things, imagine if it wasn't tied to their real identity. So they didn't get kicked out of school. They weren't called into the principal's office. They didn't wind up in front of the police. It was just something stupid that they said. They looked back on it. They got dogpiled on. They, they, they abandoned, they jettisoned that identity and assumed a new one. And now that identity is, is gone. And in fact, Edward Snowden points out that 
maybe the new identity becomes a person who can dogpile on the original one because you've changed your point of view. That to me seems like a very healthy way to grow. And I, I just, I, I really have a, a hard time accepting that we have entered into a world now where that's no longer the case. Now, two bit in the chat room points out that Whopper burgers were made from rat meat and cyanide and it was on Wikipedia. And that's true. I'm not saying that every single fact that has ever been posted on Wikipedia is, you know, is the, is the word of God himself, right? But at the same time, any time falsehoods do come up, they're often corrected. I would bet, to my point, if you were to go look up the Whopper uh, today on Wikipedia, there would be a reference to the Whopper story being debunked of it being rat meat. But at the same time, there are no... Uh, references now on Wikipedia that would claim with any authority that the Whopper is made out of rat meat, right? That problem got corrected. The information got corrected. In fact, I work with a guy that one of his pastime hobbies is he jumps on a different computer. If he's got a different IP, creates an account and tries to go screw up some Wikipedia articles. And it's amazing. And we're both fascinated at how fast they get, uh, they get undone. The, his, his, his falsehoods get uh, recorrected. By the way, this is not something I support. It's just something that I have seen happen enough times that I bring it up. The point is that what he's saying rings very true to me, that the internet is the one place you can go, or at least used to be able to go for reputable information. And as governments, corporations, and money has gotten involved, it has gotten more and more difficult, and it's become more and more of an untenable place for those of us that want to come onto the internet to learn and communicate and connect with one another. And that is extraordinarily frustrating. Look at Amazon. When I go to buy a vacuum cleaner, the place I go is Amazon.com. And maybe I'm not even going to buy the vacuum cleaner on Amazon. Do you know why I go to Amazon? Because millions of other people bought vacuum cleaners on Amazon. And I know that the vast majority of them will come back and leave a review, either why they're unhappy or why they're happy. And you can read through those reviews and you can start to get a sense of what this product is going to be like. Again, counsel of many. That seems to be... Uh, something that is hugely valuable and is getting lost on us because people in general are starting to trust the internet less. Amazon, as great as they are for reviews, is the company that makes the Alexa, the very device that is has been in the news for the last couple of weeks for all these fragrant pri privacy violations. And so at what point do people are people going to start swearing off Amazon? Hey, I'm not doing Amazon anymore because they violated my privacy, blah, 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 right? And all of a sudden, technology that could be being used to better our lifestyles and connect us with a genuinely useful utility on the internet, that is to say, an online shopping center and a device in which we can interact via voice commands to that online shopping center because they can't just make the money off me buying something, because they have to have some stupid center in which they spy on the communications and record and do all these things and then it comes out, because they can't resist that temptation, people aren't going to trust it. And there's no way on this green earth I am going to put an Amazon Alexa in my bedroom, certainly not, not with a camera. And so that's frustrating to people like me who did live through this time where everything was great. And before I go on, I want to I point something out. Edward Snowden is... He's one of those people that I really look up to. He's one of the few people I, I desperately want to meet someday and shake his hand. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for the sacrifice that he made. I have a hard time really um, 
criticizing any of the decisions that he made. I really feel like he made the best possible decision given the circumstances that he found himself in. There is one thing, though, that frustrates me about his book, and that is this constant... It, it seems like constant need to try to convince people that he was as much of a victim of the system as anybody else. And I don't necessarily believe that to be true. So in the interest of honesty and disclosure, here is his rationale for uh, essentially when the when the cards turned. I didn't realize that engineering a system that would keep a permanent record of everyone's life was a tragic mistake. And he goes on to talk about how some of the compartmentalization that the government and the NSA asked him to use uh, and forced him to use and, um, you know, the need to know doctrine played into all of that. I again, I, I feel like to a certain degree, we as humans have a coping mechanism in which we lie to ourselves. And I think that he had fun building these systems. I think he had fun with the power that he had. And then I think at some point he looked back and goes, oh, my gosh, what did I do? And I don't know that that I don't know that his explanation of, well, I just really didn't know what I was building. I didn't really see the full picture until later. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But that that to me seems like the one thing in his book or the overall message anyway, that I think might be a little skewed. Everything else, though, I I buy in 100% because everything this guy has said has been validated and verified numerous different ways by numerous different people by very reputable news organizations um, that came out to, to show all of this. And so I, I told you I wanted to dig into the the why of this. Why are we in the situation that we're in with privacy and companies trying to steal your data, so on and so forth. And the reason is because companies simply exist to make money. And we have created a market in which it's profitable to violate data. We have told these companies, we continue to tell these companies, we send a very clear and consistent message to these companies that we do not value privacy. Even if they're willing to take our money for it, we are not willing to pay for any privacy. And we certainly aren't going to leave their platforms for the purpose of self-hosting because we're too lazy to do that. And so what we're left with is Facebook and Google should do the work that we're not willing to do for us. Here's Edward Snowden talking about that. Companies realized that people who went online were far less interested in spending than in sharing, and that the human connection the Internet made possible could be monetized. If most of what people wanted to do online was to be able to tell their family, friends, and strangers what they were up to, and to be told what their family, friends, and strangers were up to in return, then all companies had to do was figure out how to put themselves in the middle of those social exchanges and turn them into profit. And that's exactly what has happened. It's exactly what happened with Facebook. It's exactly what happened with Google. It's exactly what happens with Apple. It's exactly what happens with Microsoft now. These companies are learning the fastest way to your wallet, the fastest way to a fat paycheck, and the way to, to, to get there with the least amount of resistance from you is to give you a, and I'm using my air finger quotes here, free service. And in return, you, they can basically do whatever they want with the data that you give them. And I, I, again, I don't think that this is clear enough. I don't think the vast majority of people that walk around this earth today really have a true understanding of exactly how pervasive this pri these privacy violations are. And it's why I spend so much time on this show talking about it and talking about self-hosting and offering resources that I've used to get myself off of some of these cloud-based services because I think it is so important. And the thing that I think motivates me more than anything else and the, the, the book brought out the inner child in me was the fact that we really didn't have, uh, we really had the perfect internet at one time and 
and it changed and we kind of lost it. We'll continue this discussion next. I do want to go to the phones because your calls always go to the straight uh, to the front of the line. James calls from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah show. Yeah, you wouldn't happen to know how to take something like GTK pseudo and convert it to an app image so I can run it in the newer Linux that because I got the apps that rely upon it that are older and dirt. Mm, that's an interesting thought. Well, let, let's start with this. Before you uh, before you go down the route of, because that's kind of a band-aid, right? I wanted to use GK pseudo. So that, have you tried using some of the container technologies? Like, is there an app image for that specific application or is there a... Is there a, a, a snap pack in any of those kinds of things that might have some of those elevation privileges more closely tied in? Um, not that I know of. I can't find any for the uh, the apps because they're kind of like older and dirt and no one's like, oh, who cares? But they 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 they, they leaned on the old GTK mm-hmm. packages and its little tidbits that are deprecated now and you know how that works and sure. you're like oh I wonder if I could throw that into a nap image and isolate it somewhat and right. just say hey let's see if this works yeah that's that, that's my thought James that's exactly where, where where my mind goes is if we can use some of those newer container technology I, I'll tell you what I'll do what, do you have the name of the app that you're trying to run or is it a, a collection of them it's a it's a little collection of them. Would you uh, would you send me an email with the names of those apps? And what I'll do is I'll uh, I'll throw it out to uh, to some of the guys that I know work on the snap packages and see if that's something that they would be interested in banging out. Because I know from time to time they do do that. If they find an application that has been deprecated but it's still very useful, they will use some of the confinement functionality to be able to get those applications to still run on on modern operating systems. So, All right, I can I can email you at your uh, company if that's where you want me to send to. Yeah, that would be great, James. I would really appreciate that. If you do that, then what I'll do is, like I said, I'll reach out to some of the people that do some of the Snap stuff and uh, and some of the packaging things and see if we can't get an answer for you. I I agree. That's it's a frustrating thing that as technology uh, moves forward, that some really great pieces of software get left in the dust just because there's nobody left to maintain them. And that's a, that's a frustrating thing. Again, you too can add your voice to the conversation. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. So the internet of the nineties was one of those times where I, I look back and I just say that was, that was like technology for me anyway. Uh, I, it, things were consistently getting better as an individual, we were relying less on companies, and that made me super happy. And as I read through Edward Snowden's book, one of the things that I think he did very well was describing exactly what the Internet of the 90s was like. From the age of 12 or so, I tried to spend my every waking moment online. Whenever I couldn't, I was busy planning my next session. The Internet was my sanctuary. The web became my jungle gym, my treehouse, my fortress, my classroom without walls. As the millennium approached the online world would become increasingly centralized and consolidated, with both governments and businesses accelerating their attempts to intervene in what had always been a fundamentally peer-to-peer relationship. But for one brief and beautiful stretch of time, a stretch that, fortunately for me, coincided almost exactly with my adolescence, the Internet was mostly made of, by, and for the people. Its purpose was to enlighten, not to monetize, and it was administered more by a provisional cluster of perpetually shifting collective norms than by exploitative, globally enforceable terms of service agreements. To this day, 
I consider the 1990s online to have been the most pleasant and successful anarchy I've ever experienced. And I could not say that any better myself. I echo his views 100%. In the mid to late 90s, everything was getting better for the individual. Everything. We had access to more tech. Every time a new device came out, it was infinitely better than the one before. We didn't treat technology as disposable back then. When you bought a computer, you, it, you could expect to get a decent amount of life out of the thing. It was supported for a number of years. When manufacturers made uh, a laptop line, like Dell, for example, back then had three lines. They had the Precision line, the Inspiron line, and the... Uh, Precision, Inspiron, and the Latitude line. And when you purchased a laptop, you decided, do I want the ultimate power station? Do I want a mix between power and, and economy? Or do I want to go economy? And then you had little tiny choices within there. But basically, your choices were an Inspiron, a Precision, and a Latitude. And you look at what manufacturers have now, right? Every time I turn around, there's another 17 models of laptops. All of them, by the way, are just ripoffs of the MacBook, and none of them are good rips-offs of the MacBook, if you ask me. So I, I look at some of those things, and I go, man, I really feel like we have gone the opposite direction. There was a time... When you could purchase a laptop for a user that wanted the most amount of battery life and they wanted you know, a lot of power in that computer. There was a time where you could buy a super thin and flexible and ultra lightweight portable computer. That's kind of what ThinkPad uh, got their start in with, right? Everything was getting better for the individual. Hard drives were big enough that you didn't have to rent space on an FTP server or you didn't have to use what I guess the kids today would call thin clients. Back then we called them dummy terminals. But you, 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 you had more access to technology and things were moving in a forward direction. And somewhere around the mid-2000s, that turned on us and it kind of flipped around. And people started to go away from owning their own technology and started relying on other services. And I think part of that is... The vast majority of the population has no interest in technology for technology's sake. They have interest in the modern conveniences that technology provides. And so if you, you know, if you have a laptop that is that is being made with everything that a desktop has, and so you had an optical drive, you had at the time a, a 1.44 floppy drive, you had wired Ethernet ports, you had a modem built in, you had Wi-Fi, all of those things came built into the laptop. Eventually, the, the modern user who has no interest in the technology goes, I'm not plugging in a wire, I just want it to be thin and light and pretty, and so why can't we have that? And then that takes off, and all of a sudden, what you find is the, 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 the mass of population just wants the lowest common denominator, the thing, the basic thing that they need to get what they want to get done, done. And it stifles innovation. It stops innovation. And no longer do we make computers with, you know, better swappable batteries. ThinkPad is kind of doing that still, but even they have kind of backed off on it. My, my new X1 Carbon, I can't change the battery on this thing. It's literally buried behind screws and buried inside the thing. I have a $2,000 laptop that I can't so much as change the battery on. How sad is that? And the one thing that I, I wouldn't necessarily say I disagree, but I just have a different experience than Edward Snowden has was, and this is true to this day, I do not see the internet as a necessary item to experience technology and to learn. I think that technology can be explored, can be experienced without the internet, and I try to do so, and I have... I do have a persistent internet connection, and I probably will for the rest of my life, but the truth is... And Sailfish OS reminded me of this. My data on my local device disconnected for the rest of the world. Well, that's amazing. That's a recipe for success every time. 
And he makes what I think is a really good suggestion as to why this change has happened. And again, it's nothing that we have not said right here on the Ask Noah show. People are always going to pick convenience over privacy. 100% of the time, they care about convenience over ownership of their own data. And we have to find a way as technologists to meld those two things together. We have to make technology that is both convenient and easy to use and respects the user's privacy because if given a choice between convenient and private, convenient and not private, users, I believe, will choose convenient and private. And there's things that all of us can do in this community for everything from setting up a C file instance for your family to hosting a NextCloud instance. All of those things, you are doing your part in your small little corner of the world to help move people away and help move technology in the right direction. Because once people get used to having convenience and privacy, they don't go back. And I've seen that firsthand. 855 450 no, it's 855-450-6624. Joel, Georgia, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How's it going, Noah? Good, man. How are you? Hanging in there. So uh, I don't mean to, when I ask this question, I don't mean to put any sort of disparagement towards you or anything personal. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, and as long as time people, uh, long-time listeners of the Ask Noah Show know, you know, you are aware of Noah's political affiliation. Mm-hmm. How do you balance your technology philosophy with, uh, with your support of Edward Snowden with many people on your political affiliation sort of seeing Snowden as a traitor and or uh, someone who sold, sold out to the Russians? That's an awesome question. That's a great point of discussion. I'm going to keep you on if you don't mind. We just we can chat about it. But the, the way I balance it is this, um, Joel. I, I, I look I, – I am a weird political creature because I simply advocate for maximum absence of coercion, right? I want, I want government and other people to stay as far out of my life and other people's life as humanly possible. And that goes for Microsoft, that goes for Google, that goes for Apple, that goes for the U.S. government, that goes for any other government. I just want to be left alone. I'm a weird person like that. I just want to be left alone. Now, I don't believe in anarchy. I think that there's an appropriate place for community and government and stuff like that. I just want it to be as small as possible, small as necessary. And what we, what I believe that we have grown into, particularly as it relates to the NSA and mass surveillance, we are so far above and beyond what is absolutely necessary that we have gone the total opposite direction into we just surveil everybody all the time as to how I balance that, you know, po- politically speaking, I don't really care if other people that 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 self-identify on the same side of the political aisle with me agree with me or disagree with me on that. It's the truth. I can look and I can tell you and I can exemplify pretty well why data privacy and why people should have a reasonable expectation to privacy and why the government shouldn't be able to violate that privacy, even with a warrant, if Using the process of a warrant means that you have to compromise the technology to begin with. That is to say, if you're going to give the government some sort of master encryption key that they can undo encryption uh, at will and they just raise their right hand and promise not to do it unless they have a warrant. That doesn't work for me. Like, would you would you are. Would you allow for the government to brute force in yes. rather than having a heat? Yes. The go- if the government wants to, and I, I used this example uh, last week or the week before, if the government, when the government went after, uh, I, I'm name blanking the guy who did um, uh, the uh, Silk Road, but uh, when when he was when he was at the library, he left his laptop unattended for just like three seconds because they had created a distraction. They knew if they executed a search warrant on his house and tried to go collect his laptop that he, Ross uh, Albrecht, they they knew he would be gone and they knew that his laptop would be encrypted and they would not get anywhere and they wouldn't be able to brute force somebody's laptop with his experience in cryptography. So what they did was they waited until 
until he was using his laptop, and then they created a commotion in the library when he turned his head. A undercover FBI agent, which was sitting at the same table he was, reached across the table and grabbed his laptop. In that scenario, I just look at the FBI and go, well, well played, guys. That's fair and square. Like, they broke through they it wasn't they didn't they didn't force any company to give up the encryption key uh they just took advantage of natural vulnerabilities that existed in his case he loaded the encryption keys into memory and left his laptop unattended albeit for five seconds but it was enough Uh, i don't have a problem with that at all if the government collects a laptop and brute forces into a password i don't have a problem with that at all i just have a problem when the government goes to facebook for example like we talked about last week and says hey we need you to kind of roll back on this end-to-end encryption thing because we don't really have a way to break it. And if you could go ahead and just introduce a private key for us so that we have a backdoor in, that'd be great. That I have a problem with. Is that logical to you? Yeah, I guess that is logical. And also, uh, from our perspective, from and I do sort of agree with you, on your, I'm on your side of the political aisle as well. What concerns me is many politicians seem to put their viewpoints in the purview of, of air quotes, uh, public safety, the, the safety of the United States and or sure. the national security interest of the United States. Yeah, the kids, and the terrorists. Well as if it, they, they always emphasize, I mean, man, many of these politicians emphasize one amendment being the Second Amendment for firearms, whereas the Fourth Amendment doesn't seem to be getting any sort of due attention. I, I completely agree. I 100% agree. In fact, if you look at the ACLU, oftentimes... They pick and choose what rights they want to come and stand up for. And I don't think we're doing a very good job at all at standing up for the, 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 the Fourth Amendment rights. And I think that's kind of frustrating. I do want to address one other thing you asked me. You said, how do I feel about or how would I how do I address or defend Edward Stone's quote unquote betrayal, I think was the or, or traitor. It was something to that effect. Right. And what I would yeah. my, my counter question to anybody that ever asks me, how can you support a traitor? My answer is, who did he betray? Because he took information funded by the American public and responsibly disclosed it to the American public. He didn't just the number of documents and he points this out in his book, the number of documents that he directly disclosed to anybody online is zero, zero. He took that information and he brought it to journalists and he explains that the reason that he did that is because he did not believe that one person should be the sole arbiter of somebody's privacy, nor should that person be the sole arbiter of what can be released to the public. Because obviously, I think we all agree that governments have a reasonable expectation and should be reasonable, uh, should be reasonably allowed to store data away from the public eye, you know, you know, where their troops are moving and where their undercover agents are. And if they are doing legitimate surveillance on a legitimate threat, that kind of information should be protected because, you know, not everything necessarily needs to be out in the open. But the problem is what we have wound up with is he on the inside was finding all of these violations of people that have done nothing wrong and have not been subject to any sort of privacy violation or, or due process and their privacy is still being violated. And he explains, you know, I could I go to my superiors? No, they didn't want to do anything about it. I couldn't go to the congressman. I couldn't go to a court. I couldn't go to a judge. There was literally no option for him to responsibly disclose this information. So he made the best decision he could in a horrible situation, which was to go to the uh, a reputable media entity and say, here, redact all the information that's going to get anybody killed, but get the general idea out there about these things. And if the NSA's answer is, well, X key score, our ability to you know watch people type in real time, 
uh, that is that now you've ruined the secret and, and thousands of lives are lost, I would ask how many terrorist events have occurred because of the loss of X key score or how many terrorist events have occurred of the loss over, uh, you know, direct access to communication messages and stuff like that. I would guess the answer to that is very little. And the people that were doing this stuff or are planning on doing this stuff, if they put any amount of time into it at all, are going to find a way to circumvent um, those systems anyway by using things like end-to-end encryption because at the end of the day, the technology exists. Most people just don't use it because it's not not convenient. And Snowden does a good job of pointing this out. That means that laws that are set up for privacy or lack thereof disproportionately affect people that are innocent by like 10 to 1 because it always is going to focus on the people that have done nothing wrong. Um, so my answer to how do I defend his quote unquote uh, betrayal is I don't believe he betrayed anybody. I don't think he is a traitor. I think that if you go to some, I think if you worked for the American people and you worked for the American public, which is what the vast majority of us believe our tax dollars go to government for is for public good. And he disclosed things that the government is not supposed to be doing by their own policies and procedures and by our own constitution to the very people the government is responsible to. That's not an act of treason. That's not an act of being a traitor. That is an act of bringing light into a really crappy situation from people that have overstepped their boundaries. Uh, is that does that seem fair to you? Yeah, it does a lot. And uh, like I like, like uh, many people say, there are no easy answers to this sort of situation. I no, would say. Uh, no, there's, there's not. There's a lot of complexity. Yeah, I, I appreciate the call. It's you're really- you're right. There is no easy answer because at the end of the day, we still live in a world in which we have to accept the fact that there are people that uh, that are out there that are going to do bad things, and we have to have some way to try to combat that. So the answer of just, like, disbanding an intelligence agency really doesn't get us anywhere. But certainly where we're at today is not the answer. I'm quite confident of that, and I think I can defend that position fairly well. Max from Minnesota calls. Hey, Max, you're on the Ask Noah Show. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Um, So I have a... Two quick questions. Um, I wanted your opinion on um, for virtualization. I know you've talked about using uh, just like a standard uh, libvirt install on like CentOS. Mm-hmm. Why that over say um, like uh, overt or Proxmox? Easier to set up. That's the only reason. Um, libvirt D is three is uh, well, I, and I'm I'm dead serious. Uh, libvirt D is three commands. You if, from the time that you install. Uh, CentOS, and you have a uh, a command prompt. It reboots after the install, and you you log into that command prompt. You see a blinking cursor. From that time until you have a working virtual host, it's as literally as simple as yum install kmu dash kvm libvirt libvirt python. I install vert manager because oftentimes I'll have a a, a um. A, uh, a graphical manager on it if it's for a client. If it's not for a client and we're just managing it, then I leave out the UI, desktop UI, and I leave out Vert Manager. And then I'll usually install LibGuest uh, FS tools. And you don't necessarily even need those. The only thing you'd have to have is KMU, KVM, and LibVirt, and I suppose LibVirt-Python. If you had those three packages, you have a functioning virtual server. So install those packages, system CTL, enable LibVirt-D, system cuddle, start LibVirt-D, and... Now you have a working virtualization server. I can tell you, I have set up over once. It's not difficult, but it's not a it's not a thirty five second procedure. And this is a thirty five second procedure. Very true. Um. So for my second question, 
I was wondering, um, for home automation, I know you went over it probably last year, but um, for, uh, you know, a self-hosted, you know, uh, situation, no no cloud stuff, uh, for, like, lights and, say, like, um, uh, a presence detection, like uh, I'm coming home from work and I want my front door to, say, uh, be unlocked, what... Um, how would uh, how would you go about uh, implementing that? I there's a couple. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different ways you could do it. Uh, the I'll tell you what I do. I'll tell you what the go to answer is, and then obviously the internet can fill you in on the rest. So the 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 way that that most people would tell you to do that is to use something like Home Assistant, Home Assistant.io, and Home Assistant is essentially a home automation controller. It's an appliance that runs as a server, and then it has a configuration utility and things to be able to tie various different automation components together. Because anytime we talk about automation, the thing that we have to understand is the people who make the best lights do not necessarily make the best security systems. And the people who make the best security systems don't necessarily make the best access control systems for the doors and the people and so on and so forth. Right. So the home assistant allows you to buy the best possible light system, the best possible access control system, the best possible, you know, whatever, and then tie them all together. So that's one way to do it. It's probably the most popular way to do it. I have gone a slightly different route. We do a lot of commercial installations, and in commercial installations, what you learn is to rely more on hardware than software, because one, hardware doesn't break as easy as software does. B, hardware tends to not be as susceptible to uh, updates as software does. If it doesn't get an update, you know, it stops working or one thing stops talking to another, those yeah. kinds of things, right? And so what I do is I use a system made by a company called Lutron to do all of my lights. And the nice thing about Lutron is it does have a software-based API. So you can plug it in, you can plug the controller, not the devices. The devices communicate with the controller wirelessly over proprietary protocol. The advantage of that is that you don't have to worry about the devices being compromised because there's a, you know, isn't a firmware update or whatever. Um, those devices aren't on the internet. So there's only a single point of entry into that system uh, from an IP network, and that is the controller itself. And by the way, that, that IP network does very few things. Um, but the thing that I like about Lutron is in addition to that functionality, they also have what's known in the industry as contact closures. And the way that contact closures is this. I can tell any light switch, when I push a light switch, to include my garage door opener, which is on that system, when I push this button... I want these contacts to close. And then on the other side of it, so for example, on the security system you asked, mm -hmm. asked about unlocking the door, my security system and my home automation, or my, uh, excuse me, my access control system, when a valid uh, remote is used to enter the I have arrived at home scene, which is one of the scenes that are on the remote, it automatically kicks off a series of things using contact closures to unlock the door through the access control system so it disengages the magnetic locks. It automatically disarms the security system. Uh, it automatically turns on pathway lighting from the driveway all the way up to the door, and that will remain on for 25 minutes, after which I assume I have carried all the groceries in or everything has happened. And if there is no motion from the entryway after that 25 minutes, it will then kill all of those pathway lights uh, so they don't sit there and, and just waste energy. Um, so that's the way I've gone about Cho oh, okay. choosing to, to fix that problem. And the, the, the thing I like about it, um, Max, is that I don't ever have to worry about it breaking because of some software update or because somebody deprecates an API key. As long as there's two physical pins that close and as long as the other side of those things, which all of them do, by the way, accept two contact pin closures as an input, you have a working system. 
Okay, yeah, because I was looking, or because I've been uh, playing around with Home Assistant a little bit, and um, I've been, I, I guess, I, another opinion I want to know. Um, uh, do you, does, I, I don't know what uh, Lutron uses for a wireless signal, but um, I've been looking into, like, uh, Zigbee and uh, Z-Wave. Yes. Um what which one be or which one would you prefer? Because I know Zigbee doesn't seem to be um, as as mature as Z-Wave, but uh, Z-Wave is, I believe, the proprietary one. Um, I don't. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, is that true? I was under the impression that those were open protocols. I could be wrong about that. But in in any event, the Zigbee or Z-Wave protocol are both going to be better choices in, uh, you know what, it is It is Zigbee. Um, that is an open protocol. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, so I would agree. Zigbee is, a, is an open standard. Um, however, it operates in an unlicensed band. And the thing that is frustrating about Zigbee is it operates on the 2.4 gigahertz and 900 megahertz band, which, by the way, are two of the most mm-hmm. polluted, unregulated bands on, under the earth. For every microwave, right. cordless phone under the sun. And the, the thing is, and this is what initially turned me off of home automation to begin with, Max, is I, I started with a system from Radio Shack called X, uh, X10, which was the which was the go-to automation system back again. I remember that. Yeah, but it was a bad science project. You know, my wife would go into the bathroom and she'd push a button and nothing would happen. And then she would tell me, hey, I really want to use the bathroom and I can't get lights to come on. I'm like, oh, we just have to reset this controller. And then she'd look at me like I have four eyes because I suggested she go into the control room and reset the controller before she can use the bathroom, right? And it took me a little bit, because I'm dense, to figure out that that's not really going to work long term. So, and, and since I've gotten the Lutron system, I mean, when we push the buttons, things happen instantaneously. I mean, right the heck now, I wait for nothing. It, if, if you didn't know coming into my house that those buttons aren't actually tied to anything, that they're, they're, they're literally just RF controllers, you would think that you just push the physical light switch. That's how fast it is. Because um, it's operating at the speed of light, and that's what you want. Um, the only difference is, at the same time that it's commanding the circuit to turn on, the light switch circuit to turn on, it's also sending a signal back downstairs to the controller that's saying, hey, by the way, I turned that light on. So there is a delay in the reporting, and there might be a delay if you're using the API. Well, there is a delay if you're using the API integration, but there's not going to be a delay when you actually go push a button to turn a light switch on, even though that light switch isn't actually what's activating the circuit. So, yeah, I, 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 does that, does that, does that kind of give you something to go off of? Yeah, yeah, that, that's – I just wanted to say that uh, – Thanks for everything you do. Um, love the show, and uh, you're a real asset to the community. Man, thank you so much. That means more to me than you'll ever truly know. I, I really appreciate your support, and thanks for calling in tonight. It was great chatting with you. 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. I don't have you scream, but I'm going to put you on the air anyway. Good evening. You're on the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Not too bad. This is Steve from Canada. Hey, Steve. Good. We finally got connected. Yeah, we did. Um, I was calling in to give you a little bit of feedback. About a year and a half ago, I called in asking what your thoughts about Dell were. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember that, but um, I was considering purchasing a laptop from them. I eventually did. I bought an Inspiron Gamer uh, 15, and it has been flawless for me. So I, the reason why I'm calling in is because I learned that not all Dells are created equally. So... Mm. This year, I went and bought a G5, which is the next evolution in that Inspiron line. Like, they kind of evolved it. 
and it has Ubuntu in the support line. So I tried to put Arch on it, and I could not get this to go with the NVIDIA graphics. Like, I banged my head against this three days, and I tried Fedora, and I tried some some other one. I ended up going with Ubuntu Mate 1910, and it worked, like, out of the box. And so I just thought wow. it was an interesting thing. I was under the impression that if Ubuntu was listed, it should work on all these other distros. It, um, at least for me, I was not able to make it work. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, that's One good. really good experience and one kind of meh. That's I've that's also been my experience with Dell, Steve. I have had the uh, I've had the XPS thirteen and it works flawlessly with Ubuntu, but they do a lot of work. And to Dell's credit, I mean it's good that they're doing the work, but they do a lot of work to make the trackpad function like you would expect. And if you just install stock Ubuntu and not their custom ISO, you do not get those added benefits and those added features. And that can be very frustrating to somebody who, like you say, you would assume that all of the device drivers are built into the kernel. Therefore, as long as I'm using a up-to-date Linux kernel, any Linux distro should run just as well as Ubuntu. And that's not the case. Yeah, so I guess the cautionary tale is um, if you buy something that says it supports Ubuntu, expect it to support that because, like I said, it was flawless. And I handed it to her and she loves it. But uh, don't expect it. Don't expect just for granted that it'll work on anything else. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Steve. I appreciate you calling in. Yeah, thanks, Noah. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. I want you to listen to what Edward Snowden says about companies who own data and why and how people have gone from owning their own data to letting companies manage it for them. It was the creative web that collapsed as countless, beautiful, difficult, individualistic websites were shuttered. The promise of convenience led people to exchange their personal sites, which demanded constant and laborious upkeep, for a Facebook page and a Gmail account. The appearance of ownership was easy to mistake for the reality of. Few of us understood it at the time, but none of the things that we'd go on to share would belong to us anymore. I would argue that the few of us even understand today what is at stake here? Unless, of course, if you're listening to this show, you probably hear it ad nauseum. But I think even today, there's a lot of people out there that really don't understand what they're giving up. Now, of everything else that I took out of the book, I think this next clip really exemplifies what my show has kind of structured itself on. And I want you to hear it with somebody that has what I believe is more authority than me on the subject. His peers, my father, was a master electronic systems engineer who specialized in avionics. To me, he was a household mad scientist who tried to fix everything himself. Electrical outlets, dishwashers, hot water heaters, and AC units. I'd work as his helper whenever he'd let me, and in the process, I'd come to know both the physical pleasures of manual work and the intellectual pleasures of basic mechanics, along with the fundamental principles of electronics, the differences between voltage and current, between power and resistance. Every job we undertook together would end either in a successful act of repair or a curse, as my father would fling the unsalvageable piece of equipment across the room and into the cardboard box of things that can't be unbroken. I never judged him for these failures. I was always too impressed by the fact that he had dared to hazard an attempt. When he returned home and found out what I'd done to the NES, he wasn't angry much to my surprise. He wasn't exactly pleased either, but he was patient. He explained that understanding why and how things had gone wrong 
was every bit as important as understanding what component had failed. Figuring out the why and how would let you prevent the same malfunction from happening again in the future. He pointed to each of the console's parts in turn, explaining not just what it was, but what it did and how it interacted with all the other parts to contribute to the correct working of the mechanism. Only by analyzing a mechanism in its individual parts were you able to determine whether its design was the most efficient to achieve its task. If it was the most efficient, just malfunctioning, then you fixed it. But if not, then you made modifications to improve the mechanism. This was the only proper protocol for repair jobs, according to my father, and nothing about it was optional. In fact, this was the fundamental responsibility you had to technology. Like all my father's lessons, this one had broad applications beyond our immediate task. Ultimately, it was a lesson in the principle of self-reliance, which my father insisted that America had forgotten sometime between his own childhood and mine. Ours was now a country in which the cost of replacing a broken machine with a newer model was typically lower than the cost of having it fixed by an expert, which itself was typically lower than the cost of sourcing the parts and figuring out how to fix it yourself. This fact alone virtually guaranteed technological tyranny, which was perpetuated not by the technology itself, but by the ignorance of everyone who used it daily and yet failed to understand it. To refuse to inform yourself about the basic operation and maintenance of the equipment you depended on was to passively accept that tyranny and agree to its terms. When your equipment works, you'll work. But when your equipment breaks down, you'll break down too. Your possessions would possess you. We literally do not talk or even acknowledge a responsibility to technology. In fact, I would argue that there is a large vocal group in the technology space that actively makes fun of people like me that talk about a responsibility to technology. You do have a responsibility if you're going to purchase a laptop to understand what the specifications of that laptop are and what it's going to do for you, and more importantly, what it's not going to do with you, for you. I think you do have a responsibility to understand when you take a picture what all information is being taken, geographical data, geotagging. If you're taking it with a smartphone, what faces are being analyzed and what? where is that data going? Where is that data residing? Who has access to it? I think as parents, we owe that to our kids. The number of times that I hear something come out of my kid's mouth that I'm like, man, just the other day, my son came home and he was telling me, he goes, dad, I set up Google Assistant on my phone. And I went, oh, great. You know, it's one of those things where we have a responsibility as parents to tell our kids, hey, just so you know, you're creating a permanent record for yourself. And the internet and Google is going to track you. And so when you go to apply for a job, there's every possibility that we're going to reach a point in which Google has the ability to tell a potential employer, hey, sign up for job service, Google, Google jobs or whatever, and we will tell you what your best prospects are. And we know what your best prospects are because we've been following these kids since literally they were in kindergarten. So we know what they're good at. We know what they're bad at. We know what they like to do. We know how hard they work. We know what their average scores are. All of that stuff is stored, cataloged, indexed, search, searchable, all of that stuff. And that extends over to the NSA as well. 
If you haven't had a chance, if you haven't read his book, I highly recommend, I cannot recommend enough that you go out, you run, not walk to the nearest bookstore or Audible or Amazon or however it is you consume books and purchase Edward Snowden's book, Permanent Record. I think it is one of the best books I have ever read, period. Above and beyond that, I think it perfectly exemplifies what we all claim to come here on Tuesday night to talk about. And of course, if you're new to the show or this is the first time you're hearing it, we invite you every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Central to join us at AskNoahShow.com. That's where we'll have these kinds of discussions. We talk about data privacy. We talk about what you can do. We talk about the various services that are out there, the various open source and Linux tools that fundamentally enable people like Edward Snowden to make a difference. Because if you think he was doing all that stuff on Windows, you're wrong. He was using the Tails USB drive. Hey, the Ask Noah show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to JTR producer Simon Quigley, assistant producer, and Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over. There's plenty more content for you 24-7, asknoahshow.com. Ask Noah show.